today's scripture reading is Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I hear it all the time. Where do you think you're going? Have you heard that phrase before? Have you noticed it's never phrased as an affirmation of your current direction? I heard it growing up all the time from my mom. Uh, I get up from the table without clearing my plate, and she'd say, where do you think you're going? Which meant, uh, no, you're not going to play video games. Get right back here. You are not excused until everyone is eaten and you clear your plate. I heard it when I was in high school from uh, you know, a girlfriend's dad. Where do you think you're going with my daughter? Uh, nowhere. I've heard it since then, um, where do you think you're going is most often said to me while I'm driving. Because I, I get on autopilot, you know, you start going in one direction and you've just, you're used to going that direction every single time and you get going and a couple minutes in, my lovely wife will say, so where do you think you're going? I'll say, um, I'm taking the scenic route. Where do you think you're going? Any way you put that phrase together, it means the same thing. The path that you're on now, the trajectory that you're on now, the decisions you are making at this moment are not likely to contribute to the ultimate success of the goal you're supposed to have in mind. Or, in other words, pay attention. <laughs> you're going the wrong direction. Where do you think you're going? Now, it's a question that I bring up for us this morning because we are two weeks into 14 weeks of going through the book of Philippians. Uh, this is Paul's letter, St. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, in which he lays out for them a number of doctrinal teachings and ethical or moral statements, commands, requirements, you could even call them. But what he asks or commands or tells these Philippian believers to do isn't going to make a lot of sense to us if we don't understand where he's trying to get them to. That's what the question, where do you think you're going, means. Our destination, our goal, the direction in which we're heading, our destination determines our days. Our destination determines the path we take and the choices we make on a day-to-day -day basis to stay on that path to head toward that destination. So if we read these commands from St. Paul and we just say, this just does not make sense, well, it may be, it may be, we think he's trying to get us somewhere different than he actually is. Or we have a different idea in mind of where we want to go than he does. So Philippians 1, 9 through 11, in the context of this prayer, he's telling his readers, I pray for you. In fact, here's what I pray for you. This prayer contains within it Paul's ultimate desire, his destination in mind for the believers at Philippi, and the following implications of then the path to take and the decisions to make to walk that path towards that destination. As we dig into this prayer, we're going to see that your destination determines your days. Your destination determines what you do 
day to day. If you haven't already turned to Philippians 1, 9 through 11, turn there in the journal. It's really easy because it's on the very first page. If you don't have one of these, they're down at the Welcome Center for like five bucks. It's a great place to keep all your sermon notes together. Um, or grab the Bible underneath the seat in front of you and, and turn to Philippians there on your phone or whatever you have with you. See, this understanding where do you think you're going, right? Our, our destination determines our days is one thing if we're talking about chores or your morning commute. It's another thing if we zoom out to talk about our life with God. So let's see where Paul's trying to take us. It's actually buried in verse 10, but I want to run up to it by reading the context. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For the day of Christ. Did you catch that phrase? Uh, that little word for is implying sort of an um, anticipation of. Here's some things I want to be true of you in anticipation of your ultimate destination, the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. He called it up in verse 6. He says, I've got a destination in mind for you. Actually, we all have the same destination. And, and there's some things I would like you to think about. Maybe consider putting into practice in your life for that day, in anticipation of that day, in anticipation of arriving at the day of Christ. Of course, before we go into all of that stuff, we need to understand what, what he means by the day of Christ. What is this destination? Now, the, the phrase, the day of Christ, uh, almost becomes a, a technical phrase whenever Paul uses it, uh, to talk about the end, or the end without end, or really the beginning of everything else. See, Paul sees all of human history as on a trajectory back towards God. Right in the biblical storyline, uh, humanity was created perfect, but the self-centered, uh, sinful rebellion of our first parents broke the world, broke our relationship with God, with one another, and, and caused all of us to be born with sin, with this bent towards sinning, this sort of, you know, we're all like mirrors turned in on ourselves. But from that very first moment, God has not ceased working to draw the world and to draw us back to himself ultimately culminating in the work of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection, his death on the cross. In our place, for us, God was once and for all drawing everyone back to himself, those who respond to his invitation to be drawn back. C.S. Lewis, the uh, Oxford uh, author, says in the end, at the end, on the last day, there's really only two people, two types of people. Those, to whom, those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. But for those of us who have responded to God's invitation and said, your will be done, even when I don't understand it, even when I don't like it, even when it doesn't make sense, your will be done, God is drawing us ultimately and finally toward the day of Christ. Now, this is not a warning I don't want you to read it as a warning. I grew up in a tradition that very much emphasized this as a warning passage. The day of Christ is coming. Don't be caught in a movie theater when Jesus returns. 
This isn't a warning. He's not saying like, hey, you got some shaping up to do or you're going to have at the very least a lot of explaining. He's saying, no, this, this is a, a glorious day, a joyful day. This is the day when everything finally comes together and makes sense, when, when all of us who have responded to Christ's invitation will be redeemed and transformed into the redeemed people that we are supposed to be, that we were created to be in the first place. This is a cause for rejoicing. Our ultimate destination is a place of joy. And Paul says, look, look ahead. Look ahead to your destination, the day of Christ. Look ahead because your destination determines your days. Where you think you are going determines the path you take to get there and the choices you make on a daily basis to stay on and continue choosing that path. Your destination determines your days. When we get there, Paul wants us to recognize it and to be at home there. He's kind of implying that there will come, there will be for some of us uh, on the day of Christ sort of a sense of, that's not what I was expecting. He said, I don't want that for you. When, when the day of Christ comes, when you arrive there, I want you to move into it as, as this is your home. This is what you have been living this life for in anticipation of that one. You should recognize the day of Christ as what God, as the home that God has created for you. You should feel like, like you're a citizen there, like you belong. Another, uh, another citizen, another citizen. Uh, commentator. Is that the word I'm looking for? I was going to say seminarian, but they all are. Another commentator uh, wrote about this. He says, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, we want to be the kind of people and the kind of community that doesn't feel strange there. Can you imagine an entire church showing up in heaven being like, this is not what I expected? That is not what Paul wants for us. So he's focusing us on the destination, on the day of Christ. This is where we're going we want to be at home there. When we were traveling this last summer, uh, the church sent us to visit some of the, our missionary partners in Europe. Uh, we brought the bare minimum. Uh, three people, 25 days, three duffel bags, three backpacks. That was it. Our friends uh, in Poland, Jacob and Becca Hash, the missionaries with faith, when they went to Poland, it wasn't a pit stop for them. It was their home. So they took everything. They took all their dishes. They took all of their furniture. They took all of their artwork. They took all of their pictures of their friends. They prepared their stuff and themselves to be at home there. They began learning Polish. They began studying the custom and the culture. They got immigration papers for their hedgehog. They made sure uh, that everything they cared about had a place. Because when they got there, the worst thing that could happen is to get there and be like, this is not at all what I prepared for. I learned the wrong language, bought an apartment in the wrong place. No, the, the point was to be prepared for their home, and Paul is calling us to the same thing. He's saying, look, I know you're comfortable now, your mortgage is half paid off, you, you know, you, that you've got, finally got uh, one of those mattresses they advertise on podcasts, and you love it, you're super comfortable here, but this is not your home. Your end, your goal, is the day of Christ, the day of Jesus. We live now like we're going there. 
That's what he means by the day of Christ. But he surrounds this goal with some character traits, some moral attributes, uh, some descriptors of the type of people who are, who are comfortable on that day, uh, who are comfortable in that world, who don't show up as strangers. He says, I want you to, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be three things, pure, blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Pure, blameless, filled with the fruit of of righteousness. Purity, of course, sincerity, blamelessness, not causing an undue offense. Uh, but this phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness, I love because it's, it's got this sort of organic growth metaphor. Uh, think of your soul like a, um, like a garden. When you come to Christ and all the, the weeds are tilled out and the ground is turned over and it's water, Jesus plants this little seed in your soul called righteousness. And he begins watering it, giving the right nutrients to it, making the sun to shine on it. And as long as we don't uh, choke it out with the other things that we plant around it and choke out the sun, uh, it begins to grow and flourish, uh, turn into a beautiful plant that begins to bear fruit, one kind of fruit. It's a singular word, but it's this incredible kind of fruit that when you, when you pair it, when you match it with different life circumstances. It takes on this unique flavor in different situations. And take the fruit of righteousness and pair it with a, a family or an office that is just constantly fighting at war and conflict and discord. And the fruit of righteousness grown in that person's life begins to taste a lot like peace. Or take the, the fruit of righteousness and, and uh, pair it with a, uh, a calling that takes everything you have, uh, a terminally ill loved one or child, a rebellious kid, and the fruit of righteousness in that person's life begins to taste a lot like patience, courage. Take the, the fruit of righteousness and Pair it with a life that just seems to be constantly assaulted by temptation, temptation to grab more than your share, to go get something when someone isn't looking, to take uh, pleasure and satisfaction from where God didn't design it, and the fruit of spirit growing in that person's life begins to taste a lot like self-control. It's this amazing, multifaceted, multi-tastable fruit called righteousness, that grows into our lives in different ways. Paul describes uh, later in this letter as, as, as good and pure and excellent and true. Uh, in others of his letters, he describes as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The kind of people who show up on the day and say, this is what I've been waiting all my life for. It's exactly like I imagined, but so much more. Uh, the people who have slowly and consistently grown in purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness. If that's our destination, joy, comfort, peace on the day of Christ like we belong as people who are pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness, then what's the path we take to get there? 
right? Our destination determines our days. Where we're going determines the path that we take and the choices we make to stay on that path. So if we want to get there, what's the path that takes us there? And asking that question implies something that may not sit well with most of us, or some of us at least. There are right paths and wrong paths. Now, I know that we're supposed to chart our own course, find our own way, discover our own happiness, make our own path, but Paul didn't get the memo. He's writing at a time and within a belief system that says, hey, the end of, hu of humanity, like the purpose of being a human being is not self-autonomy. It's to bring glory and praise to God. And the way we do that, this is his prayer for us, is to come to the day of Christ, pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. There are paths that lead that way and there are paths that are do not. Paths that do not. Paths that aren't leading us there. You know what I mean. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm talking about just like the major decisions in your life, right? Where you go to college, who you marry, whether you have kids or not, what job you take, what city you move to. By and large, those aren't the decisions that determine this path that we're talking about. It doesn't matter if you go to Purdue or IU. You can still walk the path of purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness. Can I get an amen from both sides, please? Thank you. It doesn't matter if you get married or don't. You can still walk the path of purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness. It doesn't matter if you have kids or you don't. You can still walk that path. It doesn't matter if you die and the entire world knows your name and you've achieved all of your dreams or you die in relative normalcy with close family and friends and a church that loves you around. You can still walk the path of purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness. The big decisions matter a lot less than you think they do. It's the little ones that you make every single day, those little moral decisions that come up and that you don't even realize. You think you're just making a decision, but you're actually choosing a path toward a type of character, toward purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness, or away from it. Don't get hung up on the big decisions. When God calls us to live in little ways in all of those decisions. See, where we're going, where we think we're headed, our destination, determines the path we want to take to get there. And Paul's implying we could miss it. We could miss it if we don't see that where we're heading takes purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness, and we instead think it takes something else, financial security or personal independence or marriage and a family or any of these other great things that we all long for. Those are great goals and they help, but they're not sufficient on their own. He's calling us to the day, to the future, to the destination along the path of purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness. If you need to, underline, star those words, bold them, highlight, do something to remind you of that. That's what he's calling us to. The destination determines our days. Where we are going dictates the path, 
and the choices we make to keep ourselves on that path and to walk along it. Now, here's the question. How do we identify the path? Right? If it's not Purdue or IU, it's Iowa State, obviously. If it's not either of those things, what's the path? I'm going to paraphrase Paul uh, from verse 10 and call it the excellent way. The excellent way. He's asking that we, he's praying that we would grow in love, our love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that we could approve, so that we could identify, test, and ascertain the worth of what is excellent. Those things that are excellent, those things that contribute towards us growing in purity, blamelessness, and fruitful righteousness. That's different for each one of you. Now, there's some broad themes that are generally the same. He's going to write a whole letter about it. Uh, but for each of you in your, your unique situation, in the decisions you've made, the people you live with or don't live with, the family you have or don't have, the job you have or don't have, the school you're going to or the work you're going to, wherever you are in your situation, the constant is understanding, identifying, recognizing, appraising the value of the things, the choices, the decisions that move you towards purity, blamelessness, the growth of that kind of fruitful righteousness. This is what Paul's praying for us, that we would recognize that path, right? There's, there's a destination. We want to get on the path that leads to that destination. All paths go someplace, but they don't all go the same place. And if you're like me from the northeast side and you tried to come across 465 this morning and you realized every single entrance to the freeway was closed, it turned out there was only one way to get here. Paul's saying something similar. There's one path, find it. But in order to find it, in order to approve what is excellent, in order to be able to identify and recognize and assess the value of the excellent things that grow within you, purity and blamelessness and fruitful righteousness, you're going to have to grow in something else first. The daily decision that we make, the daily choices we make to stay on that path come in his prayer in verse 9 at the very beginning. It is my prayer that... It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Love with knowledge and discernment. So we took the prayer in reverse order because your destination determines your days. I mean, the, the days, the daily commands don't make sense if we don't understand the path that we're on. And the path that we're on doesn't make sense if we can't see the destination that it's going to. So our destination determines our days. We work ourselves backwards to what are we supposed to be doing on a daily basis? Well, Paul's praying that on a daily basis, our love would abound more and more. That our love would abound more and more. This is not a um, backhanded prayer that's trying to get them to realize they don't have any love. You know, he's not doing the whole, oh, bless your hearts, you Philippians. Uh, he's saying, you already have this. You have this love, but it needs to grow. It needs to continue to grow if you're going to be able to recognize and identify and assess the relative value of the things that will help you grow along this path, move along that path towards the day of Christ. Our love will have to grow more and more. Now, when Paul uses the word love, by the way, he is not using it in sort of a smooshy, gooshy, touchy-feely, like warm feeling sort of sense. I want your warm feelings to grow. It's not what he's saying. Uh, one commentator calls this an incredibly sober kind of love, a love that takes precedence over knowledge, discernment, excellence, purity, blamelessness, righteousness, glory, and praise. 
a very sober kind of love that recognizes the world for what it is, can accurately and appropriately assess the world, recognizes what happens in any moral decision that is made, that's the discernment part of this love, and can make the decisions that move themselves and others towards not an immediate good, but their ultimate good. I mean, think of, uh, think back to high school drama, or if you're there, just remember Friday. You've got this, you know, friend who's dating this guy, and he just makes her feel so special. Uh, but you've seen him when she's not around, and you know what he's like, and you know if they keep dating, you know how it's going to turn out, right? So out of love, you ignore all of that, and you just tell your, tell your friend to be happy and follow her heart, Right? No, because that's not love. That's short-sighted desire for some momentary happiness at the expense of long-term health, wholeness, and positive, good relationships. You're at the grocery store, and you see a a kid just breaking down in the aisle, right? And uh, no, this is no parental judgment because I've done this exact same thing. You're like, I need you to stop. There is candy. We will open the candy and we will shove it in the thing that is crying and it will stop crying, right? But I'm trading short-term peace, sort of, for long-term self-control on the part of my child. That's not love, at least not if you do that every single time you're at the grocery store. It's it's admissible once or twice (laughs) a week, but not every single day, okay? Or you've got a coworker, right, who keeps coming to you for help on how to do their job. And it feels great because you get to help them and you feel needed and all that until you realize five years down the line as they've been passed over and over and over for promotion that they have never learned how to do their job well enough to grow. That's not love. You are trading your short-term desire to feel needed for that person's long-term good in their career, in their vocation. Love without knowledge and discernment quickly becomes a parody of itself. It gets reduced to mushy sentimentalism and wanting people to be happy in the moment and ignoring their true good, their ultimate good. This kind of love that Paul is talking about is an incredibly sober and sobering and serious kind of love because it has to come with it, that knowledge and that moral insight that actually helps people mature in purity and blamelessness and fruitful righteousness, not just sort of create a um, faux microwave, you know, quick transplant the landscaping version of it, where it suddenly looks beautiful, but it all dies. Purity, blamelessness, fruitful righteousness, this is where we're going. We don't get there without a love that also has knowledge and moral discernment. Some of us are very good at one of those three. uh, There's a few saints in the room that are good at all three. I'm good at knowledge. That's the one that I can just bring knowledge bombs and drop them on people. Look at all these facts. We did the the Names of God study over the summer. I was looking at some of those names and looking particularly at Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And I realized I could go for half an hour telling you all about that name. 
the four letters, the tetragrammaton, yod, hey, vav, hey. We don't know what the original vowels were because they weren't pointed in the Hebrew text, but in order to not say Yahweh out loud because the Jews don't do that, they put in the vowels for Adonai, and if you take the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai, you get Jehovah. That's where the name Jehovah comes from for, for God. It means I am who I am, but it's also tied to his character, so it probably means more about like I, I am the one who has made these promises to you and all of this stuff. I could go for a whole sermon and not tell you a single thing about God. But I got knowledge. Some of us have moral discernment. We're really good at going to other people and saying, here's what you're doing wrong. <laughs> Do you mind if I share that with you? No, no, really, it's no bother. I, I, I'm happy to. <laughs> but knowledge or moral discernment without love quickly becomes cold-hearted and manipulative. Stop sinning, you're bothering me. Love, without knowledge and discernment, of course, becomes that sappy sentimentalism that I already talked about. All three of these things are necessary, and all three grow together. Love, the kind of love that Paul is calling us to, the kind of love that can recognize and identify and appraise the relative value of the excellent things that move us along the path towards the day of Christ, these things require knowledge, require discernment. We have to. We must grow in all three together. We can't just choose the easy one. And hope that maybe, you know, we get married and that'll take, take the other half of the, of the equation. We have to grow in them all together because love, which, by the way, is fundamental in every one of Paul's letters, our response to the goodness of God to us, which he calls love, is fundamental for Christian living, for worship, for ethics, uh, for sanctification, for everything that Paul wants to talk about. Love is fundamental because love not only guides our steps on the path, it continually reorients our eyes towards the destination. Think about it. Every time that you have been on the road to somewhere great, like financial wholeness, and then you're like, Coles is having a sale. Your eyes got off the destination. Every time you're on the path uh, towards physical fitness, and Nathan brings in donuts. <laughs> Your eyes get off the destination. But love for any one of those things, or ultimately love for God, brings us back, brings our eyes back to the destination so it can determine the path that we choose on a day-to-day -day basis to walk down. Our destination determines our days. So let me bottom line this sermon for us. You know, it's actually kind of hard to apply a, um, a prayer because um, you want to say, well, let's pray this and be done. But I think there's a few uh, maybe evaluative questions, self-reflection questions we could ask ourselves in your uh, small group, home group, community group, group group, whatever we call it. Uh, bring up some of these questions with the people who know you and are willing to be honest. Where do you think you're going? Or where do you think God's trying to take you in life? I don't mean where do you think you're going in the cosmic, if you were to die tonight, you know, where would you go sort of sense. I mean in, in terms of the goal of your life and growing in a certain kind of character, where do you think you're going? If you are not sure you're a Christian or you're sure you're not a Christian, 
There's really only one thing I want you to hear this morning. I've said over and over again that your destination determines your days. That is a truth that is unique to Christianity. Uh, Every other religion, every other way of being human, every other philosophy of the meaning of life tells us that your days determine your destination. That the choices you make right now put you on a path towards an ultimate end that you cannot escape from that you are only as good as your worst mistake. That if you've committed, you want to be in a particular destination, any one of the good ones that we've talked about already, but you aren't willing to walk that path, you are not going to get there. In no other religion or philosophy of life does the destination come to you and inexorably draw you to it. But in Christianity, God himself became man in Jesus, took on the form of humanity, lived, suffered, died, and rose again for us in our place so that our days did not determine our destination, but our destination frees us to live in that direction and to fail and to live in that direction again and to fail and to live in that direction again. Christianity is the only way of being human that tells us you are as good as Jesus' perfect righteousness. That destination is locked in and guaranteed. If you're on your way towards, I don't know, Olympic greatness, and you start eating all of Nathan's donuts and never exercising, Olympic greatness is not going to come looking for you. But if you are on your way towards the day of Christ as one who has submitted to Christ's will, and you fall away from that for one reason or another. You fall this direction, you fall that direction. The day of Christ, Jesus himself comes looking for you and says to you, I have already paved this way, and I am taking you there. I am pulling you there. It's a day of rejoicing. I know when you get there, you're going to wish you had gotten farther along the way on your own, or with my help, really, he would say. But I'm taking you there you will get there. And because we know we're going to get there, we are free to try as hard as we can, to fail as often as we must, and sin no longer longer becomes this uh, point at which we are condemned or judged or shamed. It it now becomes a a place in our souls where healing comes. We fall away, and the church doesn't say, shame, get back on the path. It says, I've been there. I'm going to be there come back. We find healing from one another instead of condemnation. We find restoration for one another instead of ostracization. We find affirmation from one another instead of shame. Because the destination is set. If you, I don't know, if you think Christianity is all about obeying rules and um, doing all the right things so that God will one day welcome you into heaven, That's what every other religion teaches. That is not Christianity. Paul does not pray that our obedience would grow more and more. He prays that our love would grow because everything else follows that. Now, if you are a younger believer, maybe you're growing in your faith, you're trying to figure out how all this stuff works together with real life, where do you think you're going? It's the same question, but I want you to spend a little time thinking and talking in your groups with, okay, what, what really is my ultimate destination? What am I holding out there as a thing that draws my heart? Is it, is it God on the day of Christ, or is it 
some other good thing that I want or have been told to want, and God is just sort of one of those things that helps me get there. Right? We're supposed to, I don't know, maybe you're chasing respectability, so you should be part of a church. Maybe God is only as good to you as the last good thing that he gave you, but not good when he doesn't give you the things that you want. So what is, what is your goal? Where are you heading? Of course, some of you have wrestled with those questions over the course of your life. You've walked a few more miles in uh, Jesus' footsteps. Uh, to you, I, I, would, I would just want to challenge you and say, remember to keep looking to where you're going, not how far behind you everyone else is. Sometimes the more mature we get, the easier it is to look behind us at people that we assume should have gotten farther than they have in the time that they've had, with the teaching that they've had, with my presence in their life. God's still pulling them down that path. Your job, my job, is to walk with them down that path, not lob comments from so much farther forward. Why is it taking you so long? So where are you going? Where do you think you're going? And how are we going to grow in this love? Now, I wish I could offer a real pragmatic three simple steps and you're going to grow in this love, but I can't. Paul prays for this love, which is a pretty big clue to us that he sees it as coming only as a gift from God, uh, that there's not work that you do to make this love grow in yourself. You can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to love more. Um, love is an affection that is drawn by something lovely. If we want our love to grow, especially our love for God and one another, then we have to put in front of our eyes something lovely that will draw that love out of us, which, of course, he'll talk about all through this letter as we see over and over and over again God's goodness to us, his grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to grow in love and you do want one practical step, focus on the gospel. Look back again and again and again and again to the goodness that God has shown us in his grace towards us in Jesus. And as we grow in love, we'll be able to recognize, okay, today I have to make a step. This choice takes me on that path or another one. But I'm so in love with that, that destination I want to choose this way, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. Love helps us to recognize the path that we're walking on, to have the knowledge and the moral discernment that helps us approve to identify and assess the, the value of the excellent things that move us along that path. Love keeps bringing our eyes back to that destination. St. Augustine wrote in The City of God that at the end without end, we will see and we will love. We will love and we will praise. Because at the end is God's love drawing us to him. Would you pray with me? God, you have been good to us, more good than we deserve with the, the love that you have shown to us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. He showed his love to us, his reconciling love.
Father, we pray in our lives, unveil your beauty to us that our hearts would love you more. In Jesus' name.